0: Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of the Half Hour Call podcast, hosted by me, Harry Sutherland. Please be aware this podcast may contain strong language. Going forward in this series of interviews, I'll be talking to professionals across the industry who will give us their stories and also an insight into the arts industry today. Hearing a show is just as important as seeing a show. People always say that if someone's doing their job right, you won't notice it. None is more important than that of a sound operator. Sound and music enhance any production and the skill is to make it look as seamless as possible whilst at the same time working with every other department to make the theatre experience just as good. Join me and Matt Williams as we look at the career in sound working on Mamma Mia, Peter Gint at the National Theatre, Don Quixote in the West End, Blood Brothers and Seven Bride for Seven Brothers. Good afternoon, Mr. Matt Williams. How are you doing, mate? Good afternoon. I am very well. It's lovely to see you, even though it is virtually today.
1: Yes, yes. Normally we'd be uh, a lot closer, socially distant, of course.
0: Of course, we're going to get we're going to get into that in a minute. But um, do you mind if we kick off today with some quick fire questions? Of course. Here we go. Coke or lemonade? Coke. Would you rather travel in time or freeze time?
1: Travel in time. It's one of my favourite superpowers.
0: <laughs> jazz or reggae
1: oh that is tough I'm going to say reggae good man tube or cab oh ah, tube I, I loathe taking the cab it's um, I find it's for the rich <laughs> and the geek of the gold socialist <laughs> I avoid play. taking a cab wherever possible
0: play or musical
1: um, musical
0: classic or modern
1: in terms of what?
0: Whatever the answer is. Oh, Modern. Touring or residency?
1: Residency now. I'm too old for the touring.
0: <laughs> Tea or coffee?
1: Coffee.
0: Football or rugby?
1: Rugby, definitely.
0: And the final one, picking or admin?
1: <laughs> um... Admin, when you're not there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to explain the answer to all our listeners out there, Matt?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, um, (laughs) as I'm sure many people who are working in the theatre industry know, uh, we can no longer do our jobs. So, many of us have taken on um, temporary COVID jobs. And me and Harry both work in um, Waitrose. Uh, Other supermarkets are available. Uh, And um, we do the uh, online picking orders. So we basically do people's shopping and put it in a crate. But um, when people can't find things, they send things to an administrator, which would be me. And Harry likes to keep me busy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we started on the same day, actually, didn't we? Do you remember? That we cold did. That we
1: started? Yes. Standing outside Waitrose at 4am.
0: <laughs> that was a good day. It's, uh, and we've been working at Waitrose now for nearly a year in May. Yeah.
1: That is frightening to think that uh, this whole shit show uh, has been going on for nearly a year.
0: Mm. Mental, um,
1: right? Yeah.
0: I mean, forget Waitrose. We're here to talk about theatre. Yes, yes. About your, your amazing career. Kick That's off. very with, gracious of you. <laughs> well, well, it is an amazing career. Um, I'm hoping to learn some stuff today. But I want to kick off with asking your first ever memory of going to the theatre. Do you remember what that was?
1: I do. My first ever memory of going to the theatre um, was very begrudgingly dragged to um, Malvern Theatre's uh, Pantomime. And I forget how old I was. I must have been about eight or nine. And um it was that greatest of all Panto's mother goose, which nobody does because <laughs> <laughs> it's rubbish. And uh yeah, all I remember is I took my um my Walkman, my retro Sony Walkman.
0: Showing your age, uh,
1: which was Contemporary at the time, and <laughs> um, sneaking in my headphones during the um, during the show because I wanted to listen to whatever I was listening to at the time. No, Probably the Beatles. You didn't you? Didn't <laughs> I? Did yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had zero interest in theatre for a long, long time. So
0: I'm Which, guessing you don't remember anything about the performance then.
1: No, the only thing I remember is that my dad thought it, I would want a a sort of fake plastic beak which they were selling front of house and bought me that and I just thought that was adding insult to injury <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of uh, informed my feelings on theatre for many years.
0: Wow so what what was the change then because you trained at Mountview what was that what was that change? Yeah
1: how, how did okay. I end up <laughs> from <laughs> hating something to um loving it and working in it yeah. um well, I, I think I originally wanted to be, um, you know, rock and roll, be in a band, or uh, I auditioned for a um, a sort of soul blues brothers kind of Motown band thing. That our we had a music teacher at uh, um, secondary school who was putting together this this sort of, sort of covers band of kids at school, and he was going to do the arrangements and everything, and we. Uh, We'd play in it and um because he was a he was a musician himself. He recorded some records and things like that. I didn't get in, unfortunately, as, as a guitar player, but um my dad had some um bits of PA kit. Um so I ended up doing the sound for this sort of Motown covers band when I was in secondary school. And then that's sort of where I um got my love of doing all things sound and then um, when it came to choosing my A-levels um, I think somebody jokingly said to me why don't you do drama and I was like yeah sure whatever uh, and then <laughs> but then the, the guy who was sort of into me was like um, yeah we can probably get you assessed on doing sound design for theatre and things like that at A-level and I was like cool okay like as, I just wanted to do as many different things I could do with sound as possible um, so I was doing music technology, but uh, I, I, when somebody told me you can do sound for this thing called theatre, I was like, sure, that sounds great. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, that's how I kind of fell into doing theatre.
0: Wow. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned your love of music there. And I see, I spot with mine at I a a Father John Misty t-shirt yes. on your good self. Yes. Let's have a look at it. Let's have a look. At, I mean, the viewers obviously won't be able to watch, but wow, look at that. I love it. I absolutely love that.
1: Yeah, it's great, isn't it?
0: I love that so much. Sorry to to divert for a second. I just love that t-shirt. Yeah. So then you went to Mountain View, didn't you? Then after that.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I sort of um, went for a few different interviews in different places, and uh, I wanted to go to Liverpool. I thought they had the you know really good facilities, and obviously my love of the Beatles uh, sort of maybe influenced that uh, decision a little bit, but. Um, Sadly, I didn't get an offer from there. I got an offer. I got two offers. I got one from Central, and uh, one from Mountview. But I thought the the interview process for Central was far too pretentious.
0: Wait, uh, what is the um the the entrance process for for a sound tech? I'm really intrigued because I was talking to um, a lady called Emily Irish last week, who is a lighting designer, and she was talking me through the the entry process in that respect. But what what's it like? For a sound designer how how is that entry process work
1: um, it was so long ago I can barely remember any details um, <laughs> I remember I remember the, the central one being very little to do with any, any actual technical aspects um, and there was more to do with putting this making up this um, this story I think we got given like a box of objects and we had to construct a story out of it and at the time I was just like, what does this have to do with um, any technical sort of uh, disciplines? So that kind of put me off. <laughs> um, but the might be one, yeah, I can't remember. I imagine there was some sort of portfolio. Um, but uh, with sound, it's obviously quite hard to do with that because um, it's, it's such a sort of live thing. Uh, you can't really recreate it uh, that easily. But um, yeah, I imagine they just chatted to us mm-hmm. and... Uh, um played them some sound, the sound effects that we made or something like that.
0: You cleared something right because you got in.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um yeah.
0: So, so what was your time at Mount if you like? Fond memory or, or accidental <laughs> yeah. memories?
1: I remember it being very hectic. Um you know, I'd I'd grown up in a sort of small town and um then we suddenly thrust into um London which uh, was sort of a bit of a shock to the system and our course was it's the sort of same amount of contact time as a three-year course but it was condensed down into two years so I just remember sort of studying six days a week and working late into the evenings and yeah being quite intense we did our first year we did um uh covered all sorts of different disciplines so stage management sound lighting wardrobe set design and then then we could specialize towards the end of that year and then the second year was just shows just show after show after show and then we'd have to do a sort of presentation and a submit uh, a uh sort of uh essay about it
0: mm. and then you graduated right
1: yeah yeah i um we had a, a showcase but um I I think I was working on that day. <laughs> I think I <laughs> I might have had some debt work or something like that. So uh, I, I missed my own um, my own showcase.
0: <laughs> missed your own
1: showcase. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It might have been on Guys and Dolls. Uh, that was probably around that time. Um, oh. Yeah, at the Piccadilly.
0: <laughs> oh, so you were working on that then? Were you?
1: I was depping. Uh, that was my one of my first uh, debt uh jobs. Wow.
0: Uh, what was, were they like with you taking work during your your final couple of months? Were they cool with that? Because I know some drama schools have different opinions, don't they, on people taking work?
1: Yeah. It, oh. Well, um well my my first I've seen my first tour, it wasn't really a proper tour, it was um with a magic show, uh <laughs> a magician uh who was doing a little tour around uh Welsh. Mostly Welsh theatres and a couple of English dates. They were just one nights, and um, he was a friend of the head of the drama course. And he said they needed a sort of technician with a sort of sound specialty to go along. So um, she said, "You can go off and do this, as it's good sort of practical experience." So my first actual proper theatre job was basically being a magician's assistant. That's Um, brilliant. Please yeah. Uh, no, but I did, I did have to make, it was very old school. um, I had to make the, um, make the pyrotechnics for him. Um, he sort of had all these powders and stuff and I would mix them and put them in paper tubes and yeah, put them in bits of bits of the set. And one day I put a bit too much, packed a bit too much in and set a dragon, the paper mache dragon head on fire (laughs) in Oxford, I believe, uh, Yeah, so that was my first actual tour. But yeah, they were generally quite cool about um, people going off and doing things, as long as you could kind of, it didn't impact your, um, the show that you were working on.
0: Brilliant. I mean, talking then, so your first, so that was your kind of your first tour, but your first number one tour was a bit of a classic musical, wasn't it? With Seven Brides for Seven Brothers.
1: Yes, yes it was. Which is
0: done nowadays, which I I don't like. So very classic, very heartwarming show, isn't it?
1: Well, I think it's probably, I don't know, maybe it's one of those now slightly problematic um, shows <laughs> for the woke generation where um, the idea of uh, seven men barging into town and kidnapping seven women and <laughs> stealing them off into the uh, mountains against their wishes probably doesn't go down too well.
0: Yeah, but it's put to the lovely backdrop of Roger Hammerstein. I know,
1: so. it's got a, it's not Rodson Hammerstein. Uh, I can't remember the actual uh, composers of that, but yes, it's, um, yeah, it's um but people still love it um
0: so talk talk to us about that tour then
1: talk yeah um so that that was that was my first sort of proper um tour as a as a sound number one so as a head of department um prior to that I'd done uh, a number of other tours um of the same kind of scale but um uh, uh as a sound number two backstage so fitting the microphones um doing the fit up for the show on tour and uh, that sort of thing. But this was, Seven Rides was the first one where I was sort of in charge of the department and um, mixing the show and sort of being in charge of everything and timing the systems so and in, installing all of the speakers, um, making everything sound nice. Obviously, when, uh, when you're on tour, you um, you take all of the kit with you. So the hire company will sort of um, hire all, the, all of the kit um, from a sound designer's specification. And then, I was sort of in charge of uh, putting all of this stuff into the next theatre and trying to recreate the sound designers' intentions and wishes and try and make it sound as consistent as possible uh, from week to week. Uh, um, what was by...
0: it like mixing with a, with a... Did you have a live band on it as well? We
1: did, yeah, yeah. We had a band of um, seven, I think it was. Was it a seven? That's very seven fitting. Bride,
0: <laughs> seven brothers with seven musicians. Yeah. <laughs> what was that like mixing with a live orchestra then? Was that... 10 times harder or 10 times easier?
1: Oh, it's, it's, um, it's uh, most of the shows I've done, I've had uh, live music on it. The only time that I've done shows with, um, that's had no live music on it. It's, it's a completely different experience. Um, it's just not as fun because you don't get the spontaneity and the interaction from between the the cast and the bands. And I just think there's, you, you can't replace it. Um, that that sort of feeling, uh, with having a live a live band, the audience know it. Everyone knows it and can feel it, and it brings that extra energy to it. And uh, obviously, coming from where I initially wanted to, uh, you know, mix bands and things like that. Uh, it yeah, it's it's always very important to me.
0: Mm. Brilliant. Oh, nice. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh. Yeah. You had a pensive look upon your face. I didn't know if you. Were oh, it, was, it was
1: a wistful. It was a wistful memory. Thinking, oh, I remember mixing bands, and mixing live, my theatre. That was a long time ago.
0: I, it will come again. It will come Lights, again. Sincerely, so. <laughs> Can we move on then to? Um, and we talk about this next job of yours quite a lot at work because we have some. A lot of mutual friends who've worked on this production of Blood Brothers.
1: Yes, a favourite of yours.
0: <laughs> Depends which cast recording we're talking about. <laughs> so you were on that for two years as sound number one again, weren't you?
1: Um, yeah, I, I initially joined as um, sound number two, um, uh, and then took over um, after a few months um, as, um, as sound number one, and. Yeah, I have very very fond memories of that uh, uh of that show sort of a lot of um a lot of good good friends of mine. In fact, a lot of them of the the people I've worked with, I've known for a long time. So, yeah, all all the people from um Seven Brothers, um I'd already worked with some of them before from about 2006. Um I met my wife on Seven Brothers and um uh, and then she Moved across onto um, a couple of the other shows I was working on. So yeah, I've known I've known a lot of these people for a long time. So it was it kind of um, and a lot of the people on the show itself had uh, had worked on it for uh, a number of years. So there was a real kind of um, family family feeling with it, which really helps.
0: So did you find them when you joined? That there were people that had already been on the train, as it were, both brothers for a long time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some of them had done it for um, sort of ten years. Yeah, still playing um, eight-year-olds at the age of forty. Um, uh, yeah, and they're still doing it now.
0: <laughs> so, do you have any fond memories of Blood Brothers you'd like to share with us? Because I know you do, because we talk about it a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, where to start? Where to start? Um, I mean, we we went to a we went to a lot of um, Blood Brothers has been around for a long time as a tour, and there are only so many towns and cities in the country so it can't it doesn't go back to the same places every year so some years they all do some more unorthodox um stops on the uh the sort of regional circuit and some of those were some of the most interesting uh interesting uh, times um we've uh, we put blood brothers into a um a converted warehouse in a town called Drogheda outside of Dublin, which was owned by some sort of faded 60s Irish pop star who loved theatre and sort of decided to build his own theatre It wasn't really equipped to uh, handle it. So <laughs> we ended up having to knock walls down to get the set in and um, there was no room for the band, so they were in a, a, a music the next door was a music shop warehouse. So they were in one of the storage rooms there. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. The follow spot operator was so young that he, he, um he had, he had to wait until he'd finished his homework before he could come and do the show. No. <laughs> yeah. It was, and then to add insult to injury, the, um normally on that tour, we'd get a tour bus, uh, from venue to venue, uh, but this was around sort of festival season where all the tour bus companies uh, are super busy and the production manager of the show said there were no tour buses that he could find so we'd have to get a taxi from i think it was Derry or somewhere like that somewhere like the other side of the country At, you know af- straight after the get out uh, <laughs> so I, I i wasn't I wasn't particularly happy with that so i did my own research and found a company which um, specialised in sort of doing, you know, like stretch limos for uh, for sort of hen nights and things like that. But they also had a bus which they said had beds on it, and it did. It was fine. I mean, when it got there, it was it was great, and it had beds on it. The only thing was that there was smoke pouring out of the engine, um, and oh. the guy driving it said, um, "Sorry, chaps, this one's fucked. We're going to send the party bus." <laughs> which, which was um, exactly what you'd imagine it would be. It was, it it smelt of old beer and disinfectant and had poles for pole dancing, a mini bar. (laughs) Uh, and, And then, so, yeah. So there was, I think probably about 10 of us on this bus, all sort of, you know, burly technicians in this pink sort of flashy bus with, Pole dancing and all sorts of things. That that was that was a fond memory.
0: That's kind of funny, you wide know.
1: <laughs> Sliding off the um the fake leather sofas as we went round roundabouts. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, ending up in ending up in dairy.
0: I mean, It saves getting a taxi. What what's that journey? That's a couple of hundred miles easy.
1: It was yeah. It would not have been pleasant.
0: That's nuts. It would have been easier just to fly it next time. Yeah, <laughs> <Get a> but. <laughs> I mean, so talking going on. I want to, I want you to talk to me like I have no idea about your job. And I often to, do. You, you, <laughs> you often do, to be honest. Um, about so when you're touring, about what your what your role is, from the moment you arrive at the theatre
1: mm-hmm.
0: to the moment you leave at the theatre, as a sound number one, what's your process throughout the week?
1: Well, so we arrive at the theatre and there's usually a sort of moment where we're all sort of standing on stage sort of looking at uh, looking around everything trying to decide where um, all of the flight cases will go uh, you know we'll have sort of three uh, three, four sort of articulated lorries worth of flight cases and set and costumes and um, props and all of the paraphernalia of stuff that uh, travels with the show trying to figure out where all that goes and then as a sound number one, I'd sort of decide um, where to put all of our amp racks and um, where the desk will go. Most importantly, where the speakers will go to, to provide um, uh, adequate coverage for that uh, that building. Um, those requirements might change from week to week, depending on how wide it is or you know, what um, sort of physical infrastructure that they have. Where the band will go, sometimes the orchestra pits aren't quite big enough, so we'll have to sort of put them remotely somehow, somewhere and figure out how to sort of work that out. Once the actual kit is in, either myself or sometimes we'd have a um, another production sound engineer um, who's just there for the fit up, um, we would then do what we call timing the system. So, I mean, how, how nerdy do you want me to get?
0: <laughs> Not Matt. Be nerdy. You nerd it out, man. Nerd it out.
1: <laughs> I'll keep it brief because I could talk for hours about it. But um, yeah, basically, each theatre is a different size. Um, sound travels quite slowly, uh, so speakers that are further apart from one another have to be um, lined up so that all of the sound sounds like it's coming from the stage. Because if you think your actor's voice is the first thing you want to hear. But if you've got speakers that are close to you, you'll hear those before you hear the actor. So, what we can do is push all of that stuff back. So, it sounds like the actor is speaking just louder, um, depending on the show, more subtly or sometimes less subtly if you want to, if you're doing a big pop show. Um, and then we do some other sort of tricks and things with EQ to make things sound nicer. Um, try and make things sound consistent from week to week because um, the sound designer will sort of have uh, their vision of how they want things to sound. Our job is to recreate it each week. Then we'll do a sound check with the band, make sure they're all seated nicely. They've got enough room uh, to, um, to play and um, everything sounds nice down there. Uh, then we'll have a sound check with the cast as well. Then we'll put everything together, cast a band and then once we've run through a couple of numbers and I'm happy, then um, then it's show time.
0: So what, what's your process then during during a show? From from say, do you, do you start work from say the half onwards, or when do you actually start? No. Working?
1: So um, typically we'd come in about two and a half hours before the show opens, and um, that would involve doing a full uh, system check. So we'd play something through each speaker and test each speaker individually so that we know That's everything is
0: the hunter by jennifer warns
1: it's a it's a hit yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've got I've, I've got a variety of of, of uh, my greatest hits of soundcheck cds just so everyone doesn't go mad um yeah we play something through uh each speaker test that all that works and the same for each microphone um cast microphones are obviously the ones that get the most beating and then replace anything that's not working fix anything then uh dish out the mics to the cast chat to resident director maybe about any notes um then sort of do bits of admin all of the cast are doing warm-up um and then during the half uh sometimes earlier sometimes later depending on how many mics you've got or what the requirements of the show is then um somebody or or multiple people will be fitting the cast with their mics, uh, hiding them in hair or costumes, just so that the uh, audience can't, uh, can't see them, hopefully. Hmm. And, um, and then we'd go out at uh, beginners, if you're sound number one and um, check in with everyone. And then away you go, make things sound nice. <laughs>
0: make it all sound nice, brilliant. And what about, what, what about the end of the week? Are you the second a curtain comes down? You're taking stuff apart, or is there like a, a planning meeting with, say, people, or what's that process for you?
1: Uh, sometimes the bigger the show, there might be a bit of um, bit of a meeting beforehand um, during the week. If um, if anything's sort of complicated, been thrown up from um, from the get in, any uh, problems or um, you know the order that the trucks have to be loaded in. If there's uh, if there's only limited access to the building um but yeah as soon as the show comes down then then we're there ripping things out i mean often during the show um backstage things will be being, being packed up as they're not needed anymore edit yeah as much time as you as you can save uh then then that's that's better because uh, you know we can be working till three four five in the morning um yeah it's it's a, it's a it's a, tough, uh, it's a tough life on tour, if you're on a weekly tour.
0: But this, this you know, that, 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 what you said there is really interesting, because this is one of the reasons why I'm particularly enjoying this conversation and talking about more backstage roles and the people that perform them, because you guys, I don't think audiences sometimes appreciate the, um, the work and sometimes the amount of hours that goes in, you know, as actors, with the last ones to arrive and the first ones to leave on tour and stuff. Whereas you guys, you're there two days before us and probably seven or eight hours after us.
1: Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think
0: it's important to, to get your side across. <laughs> Do you know what
1: I mean? <laughs> yeah, there is, the yeah, from an audience perspective, yeah, our our job is often to remain um, transparent so that, uh, you know, you can just focus on the the show. Sometimes we might sort of have a bit of a flashy effect here and there, but mostly uh yeah we're there to serve uh, serve the story uh maybe so, we're,
0: uh, we're all there to serve <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you talk about audiences there i want to uh, this i'm going to really try and crowbar this next segment in with <laughs> awful awful crowbar you talk about audiences there and mm. you've had some great audience um interactions when you worked on mamma mia in town yeah <laughs> i crowbarred that one in there
1: yeah uh, that's a nice little segue you um
0: did for three years in town didn't you
1: i did yeah it was one of my favorite jobs i think oh, maybe i wouldn't have done it for three years had it had not been um yeah i have a i have a secret love for abba i think <laughs> it was one I, of the few i know <laughs> it's they're very underrated very underrated um,
0: not great because they would be paid at weddings would they
1: no but i don't think people appreciate the complexity of the songwriting the depth and the, the sort of scandinavian melancholy <laughs> yeah um uh yeah, well, yeah i did for three years um audience they were interesting <laughs> yeah they were very lively
0: <laughs> does, that, does that make it even more harder to mix the show because obviously like well, yes you know one, one would imagine when you're just mixing a show without an audience you can make it sound beautiful and obviously when you get Screaming Head Nights in and stuff, that must make it ten times worse.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, screaming Head Nights, um, Japanese tourists translating the show live to their mother from Japanese <laughs> to English.
0: Please tell us about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, they were sitting right next to the desk. <laughs> oh, I didn't have the heart to tell them off. because so she the,
0: was actually talking normally, translating the show. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And her mum was saying, I assume it was in Japanese, what the hell is going on? Um, and then her daughter would be translating it. Um, we've had, yeah, drunken arguments with um other members of the audience and people have to get thrown out. And I've had somebody um uh nearly vomit on the sound desk. People leave oh. half-empty pint glasses on the sound desk. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very strict in the theatre, aren't we, Matt?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's a lot more civilized than some people um, <laughs> maybe think. They're at a different sort of uh, a different sort of event. <laughs> yeah, there's always uh, some sort of middle-aged lady who uh, who wants to get up and dance with her um, her feather boa in the middle of the stalls, but unfortunately, the you know hundred people sat behind her maybe don't want to see that. <laughs>
0: What what job role were you then on Mamma Mia?
1: So that, I was um, uh, deputy head of sound. Um, so there was a team of four of us. Um, there was sort of two of us who would sort of deal with most of the front of house requirements, sort of mixing the show, um, making any decisions about that. And, um, and then there was two more people backstage who would uh, take care of most of the backstage stuff with mics um but then me and the sound number one uh, the head of sound would also sort of uh, we'd also do a show here and there backstage as well mm-hmm. um uh that's a lot different uh, in in the west end um to being on tour there's a it's a different sort of uh of your week in what way it's it's a lot easier <laughs> well i'm not gonna lie it's um <laughs> You know, you're you're not moving uh, an entire show to a different theater each week or every two weeks or um, whenever your tour's doing. You know, you, your theater is is there. You know, you go to your show every day, and it's still there. Yeah, it's a lot more. It's a lot more relaxed. It's a lot sort of more of a day job kind of feel uh, to it. Um, and it's a different feeling, um, sort of socially as well. When you're when you're on tour, you know, you're a little family. You're um, working together and living together mostly, and, you know, you, you finish work and you go to the pub together, you know, you're living, they're the only people that you see for, you know, a year maybe, uh, you know, unless you kind of get a chance to dash off back home for half a day or something. Um, but, yeah, mostly it's uh, it's a lot more of a family feeling, whereas working in town is, um, is a lot more sort of relaxed and civilised. <laughs> Um, But uh, we'd still, it's still very, it's still very busy, we'd still sort of come in, you know, still doing two and a half hours before the show, doing all those checks, and then we'd have, uh, you know, there's still understudy rehearsals and auditions.
0: Um, I mean, but you you know, you talk about working in town there, again, another little segue, because uh, you were at the National, an extended period of time weren't
1: you yeah yeah it was it was um 18 months nearly yeah it's come up to two years probably before covid um, came and before fucked everything up, yeah, right? the, rona the rona happened so what,
0: what what was your your job role then at the national
1: so lots yeah of stuff, didn't you yeah the, the national works in a very different way to um to most places um that um that are in the uk at least um they work in a repertory system. They they have three theatres and um, generally there is um, two shows happening in each theatre and they um, they can swap them around and rotate them in sort of chunks of you know, sometimes they can just do a couple of shows and then swap it around to another show um, overnight. They have amazing facilities there for doing that. You can store an entire set backstage and I was uh brought on there um uh prior to that i was doing um uh, a production of the twilight zone and the um and the sound designer brought me across from uh from doing that to a show that he was doing it at uh, at the national he wanted me to mix that called uh, peter gint which was peter a gint. which was a reimagining of um pia gint yeah, uh, yeah. that most beloved of Danish shows. Danish? I think it's Danish. <laughs> uh, by David Hare. He was um he was sort of rewriting it. Um it's you know, notoriously an sort of unstageable sort of fever dream of a piece.
0: You that was in the Olivia,
1: right? That was, yes. Yeah.
0: What was that like working in the Olivia? Imagine that must be amazing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it'd been one of my dreams. Um since, since the start of sort of working in theater to do something at national. Um, and then to, to, um, for the first thing I'd do there was to be opening a brand new show and then Olivier was, um, was, was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I had a great time, um, on that. And then they kept me on after that, um, doing various different shows and yeah. Yeah. We just sort of do different show every couple of months. Was um, there another
0: show that you particularly enjoyed doing there, or, or say the other end of the scale you didn't enjoy because it was the technical nightmare? <laughs>
1: um, I really, I really liked um translations.
0: Oh, by Brian Friel, great. Yeah,
1: I think it's a brilliant play, and the production of it there was so good.
0: Was that with um Kieran Hines.
1: Yes. Yeah, raider in uh, Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah, I, I never knew you worked on um, translations. You'd never talked about it before.
1: Ah, uh, that old show. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's got great music in it. That's, it's uh, really ethereal. Um, they had this, uh, I can't even remember what the name of this thing was. They had to make it, and it was, it was about the size of a door laid on its side, and it had, it had four strings on it, I think, all tuned to the same, the same note and you sort of played with your fingers it was like a big wooden box and then they passed it through um, a whole load of effects and stuff and it just sounded really ethereal and um very dreamlike it was um yeah it was really cool
0: oh nice one i mean i, I never got to see i was gutted but now i know that you worked on it i want to see it even more
1: oh, chat to you about it on thursday
0: <laughs> <laughs> i mean we're, we're slowly running out of time which is a a massive shame but i want to ask you two more questions if mm. i can is that okay with you sure it's been really um really amazing today to for any of the listeners out there i'm going to out you matt right now i've been trying to get matt to come to the
1: podcast now for about what a month, about a well, month more now. than that what? more than that i'd say about six
0: and he's been putting me off and putting me off
1: <laughs> i'm just waiting until you build up a sizable profile
0: but this is this which makes it more enjoyable, I think, because I feel like I've earned it. I've earned it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> this prized interview. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the, yeah, this the this penultimate question I want to ask you mm. is um is how you think maybe that your gender has affected your work or your career? Um, you know, because backstage can you know famously be quite male dominated, and I'm wondering if you had an opinion on. And yeah, whether you think that your gender has affected where you are today.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think especially with um, technical professions, there's um, there is, uh, or at least with sort of some of the more sort of technical ones like lighting and um, and sound, there is there is that sort of um, inherent sort of misogyny, and um, yeah, I often have sort of female um, colleagues sort of when they were carrying stuff, sort of the local crew members sort of saying, oh, don't worry, love, I'll get that. And they'd be like, no, it's fine. I carry this every week. Like, I know exactly <laughs> what I'm doing. But I think that's, it's kind of dying out a bit. Um, that, and now there's, with, although I think for, for sounds, there's still, there's still, um, there's very few female sound designers. I, I think uh, as to whether it's affected me, um, I mean, obviously I'm had the benefit of being, you know, the ultimate of uh, white male privilege. So, Mm. you know, maybe I wouldn't have had, um, as many good jobs had I been, you know, had I been different, uh, different gender or, or race. And, and that's, that's a real shame. Um, because, you know, people are missing out on, um, huge huge amounts of talent if they um if they um are overlooking people
0: that's a very honest answer i appreciate that thank you very much i want to end today with asking you you know with with the the opening of theater not really in our sights at this moment i want to ask you what you think theater is for and the role it takes within society and how much the undervaluing it has. I mean, right now when we're recording this is the day after of that BBC um, thing. Did you see it last night? The BBC Ah, British show.
1: I I didn't watch it. Um, It's too painful.
0: Um. (laughs) (laughs) It was a a trending topic on Twitter. Was it? It was a number one trending topic. And I think for me, that was really, um, really visual in terms of the loss of of live entertainment kind of thing. And I want to ask Mm. you, what you think theatre's for in our society right now.
1: Oh, that's a heavy one. Um, yeah, well, I suppose you don't, you know, if we don't have any any of the arts, then, you know, what, what are you doing? What are you sort of, what are you living for? Um, I mean, that makes it sound very grand, but... No, carry on. I'm intrigued. Carry on. Um, Explore that. You know every one of us sort of enjoys some form of of art whether it is you know uh, watching the tv or listening to the radio um, or going to the theater or watching a live band and i think i think people are really missing that um that human connection and storytelling through any sort of medium especially the sort of live entertainment such as, um, music and, and drama. And I think w- without it, you, we can feel a bit more distant from society as a whole. Um, I think you, you know, you tend to become very insular, whereas, um, different forms of art, um, can give you a different perspective on life. And I think, um, I think ev- everyone should benefit from that. And, I think, I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but um, theatre can be seen as so elitist. And I think one of the things that um, has been maybe positive you now, I'm pretty sure you might disagree with this, is Oprah. the um, access of things, being being able to view things online. And, I, um, you know, we've talked about this before and how, you know, it might devalue or cheapen the experience but i also think that it's, it enables um a, a wider um, variety of people to access um mm. that form of storytelling and sort of it can expand your perspective and worldview mm. you might sort of get a you'll be missing out on that if you can't afford to pay for theatre tickets which are very very expensive because it requires a great amount of people and resources to um, make happen um, but it is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people so I think um, I think if anything good is coming out of the pandemic it's that um, those sort of uh, different forms of access to, um, to theatre has been well they'll be taken into consideration I think.
0: Mm. Matt that's that's beautiful. Thank you very much for coming on today, and I'll speak to you soon.
1: All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me.